Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Lord, you are our Father. And we praise you and we thank you for your goodness, for adopting us and making us your children. And God, you are in heaven. You rule over all that you have made. You are high and lifted up. You are the central reality behind all that is. Because everything exists by your will and by your good pleasure. And so is your name holy, God. Hallowed is your name. Sacred is the place where you dwell. O oh Lord, that we should be recipients of such free grace, that we should be set apart and called your holy people. O oh God, let it be a treasure to us that you would call us. And so would we walk in a manner worthy of you and of your glorious kingdom and of the calling that we have. We thank you for the privilege that we have this day to gather in this place and to study your word, to freely proclaim the gospel without fear of persecution. God, may we honor it and may we adorn it in our lives. We thank you for your blessed Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts, who fashions us and forms us into the image of our Lord Jesus. And God, we thank you for his precious blood, which has bought us. We thank you for his suffering in our place, bearing our sins in his body on the tree. And God, we thank you for his glorious resurrection, which gives us hope of eternal life. Indeed, we have seen that Jesus has conquered sin and death, and we eagerly look forward to that day when he will come and take us to be where he is. And so, Lord, we rejoice in all that you are and all that you've done for us. We thank you for the privilege that we have to be called Christians, followers of Christ. And Lord, we pray that each day you would strengthen our faith and make us more and more like Jesus. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> I was recently sitting at home and flipping through my um, Ligonier Ministries catalog. You know, looking at all the fancy Christian books that I want to read every one of them. And, uh, <laughs> and I only have time to read just a few. And as I'm reading along, I come to page 19, and here's this book right here. No Other Gospel by Carol Ruvalo. <laughs> so I thought, wow. There's a star in our midst. <laughs> Not really. Not a star in the worldly sense, but a star in the sense that she might shine in the kingdom of her Father forever and ever. Amen? So I wanted to point this out, and I asked Carol to bring some of her uh, brochures. You may not know, but Carol has written nine books. True? Twelve. Twelve books. <laughs> And uh, there's a little pamphlet in the back that has many of them on there. And so you can see those. Carol is our dear sister right here in the front row who always has the insightful comments and questions and um, who has been a tremendous help to me in my ministry. And I just wanted to commend her to you today and, and her books. And uh, you might frequently hear Pastor Tim make reference to our own Carol Ruvalo. Well... Here's Carol, and the book he's referring to is No Other Gospel, which is a commentary on the book of Galatians, which he's kind of using as a study aid as he uh, reads through and preaches the book of Galatians to us. 
Okay, so wanted everybody to have that information. Yeah. I'm just going to pass this around and put this on your sheet for the. Okay. Okay. There's no don't sign your name for the food. You just mark it off and then write down yourself notes to yourself as to what you're bringing. Okay. All right. So, uh, let's see. With that, we're going to dive right in to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Last week, we finally finished chapter 1. <coughs> I really didn't think it was going to take that long to get through chapter 1, but it was just loaded. And it was just a joy to study and, and to uh, teach. And uh, so today we start into chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'm gonna just going to read the context to you. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Amen. Well, so there is a section of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and there Paul starts out in this chapter by saying, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. And so here the word for, he's pointing us back to the verses before, and he's saying, if you will, therefore, or because of, right? He says, you yourselves know. Paul now begins a discourse on the integrity of his ministry and message and an explanation of how the Thessalonians themselves are living proof of the effectiveness of his ministry there. In this, Paul appeals to his calling by God as a gospel minister and in so doing, points out that they were therefore not called by immortal men, but by God himself. He further points to the stellar integrity and example that the apostles were to the young church, and in this discourse shows us, how, how, shows us many keys to effective discipleship. In fact, the section in verses 2, verses 1 through 12, is one of the richest sections of Holy Writ regarding the character and nature of Christian discipleship. Here are the blueprints for a healthy church and for healthy church leaders. Notice here the characteristics of Christian discipleship. In verse 1 and 2 is a powerful, bold evangelism even in the face of opposition. Verses 3 and 4, the divine origin of the message from God and not from men. Verses 5 and 6, the pure motives of Christian leaders. Verse 7, the gentle and nurturing care for young believers. Verse 8, the loving sacrifice of Christian leaders. Verse 9, the hard work of disciple-making. Verse 10, 
the genuine and upright example of Christian leaders. Verse 11, the firm discipline and guidance of Christian leaders. And verse 12, the goal of Christian discipleship, a holy life that glorifies God. And so, if you will, this is a tremendous section here that teaches us what Christian leadership should look like because we see the apostles living out the very thing that Jesus taught them and applying it to the church who was born there in Thessalonica. And, and Paul, obviously, here is giving some sort of a defense of his ministry. Now, there's nothing in the letter that says that Paul had a bunch of critics. But one of the things that commentators and um, men who are critical of Bible text will do is they will frequently imply by things that are being said other things that would cause them to want to say those things. So many of the commentators will say that Paul was under scrutiny. Um, In other words, it kind of might go like this. Uh, You know, Paul got run out of town. Timothy and Silas join him later in Athens, some months later. They, They send Timothy back to Thessalonica a few months later. We know this from chapter 3. And when he gets there, if you will, there are several issues and concerns that the church has that Timothy is ministering and and relaying uh, to them. But not only to them, he comes back to Paul and he gives Paul this encouraging report of their faith, which report Paul has already commended them for in all of chapter 1 and the things that happened there. But if you will, he also brings back, if you will, a list of questions and a list of concerns and a list of things that the church was sharing with him, that is Timothy. Timothy goes there, they share these concerns, these things that are lacking in their faith. Again, we find that in, in, in the book. And, and so Paul writes the letter of 1 Thessalonians in order to address many of these issues. Well, because he gives such a lengthy um, defense of his integrity as a gospel minister, it, it is uh, assumed that he's under some kind of criticism. Well, whether or not that's actually true, I can't tell you. One thing we do know is that Paul gives us a lengthy discourse on how he planted the church and what kind of work he did to establish the church and how that uh, uh, affected his own character. And it it was a thing that produced a much uh, effective fruit in the lives of those who were there. And so from this, we get a tremendous uh, discourse on what, true biblical leadership looks like. And uh, not only that, but the very example itself of, of the Apostle Paul himself establishing and planting a church. Not only this, but we know that this is no small thing because we know that the Thessalonian church received the word of God for what it was, the word of God, right? And in chapter 1, it tells us that they received it with full conviction and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we know this because God had sought to display his majesty and his power in this young church and through them to evangelize uh, um, the entire province of Macedonia and Achaia and even places beyond that. And we know that God was orchestrating this special work because of the place that Thessalonica resided Because in that ancient world, they lived right on these main arteries of tradeways that came through Thessalonica. And because of that, they were perfectly positioned for God to spread the gospel through them. And not only that, but you know how God likes to do things that glorify himself. They show our weakness and his power. Amen? And so it is with this little brand new baby church who Paul comes through does this amazing work of disciple-making, and in just a few short months, they have sounded forth the gospel literally in their entire uh, province and the next-door province. And the the, the Scripture says, in every other place, which is just a hyperbole about the fact that they went everywhere preaching the gospel. And so we know then that these efforts that the Apostle Paul made here were very effective. And so, if you will, we have what I think is one of the most comprehensive sections in the whole Bible 
about what Christian discipleship looks like. What does it look like to establish new believers, and what does it look like to establish a new church? And uh, so that's what we have in, in the First Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through twelve, and even kind of beyond that, he's he's giving us more information. Paul begins his discourse by calling them to account of their own personal knowledge of Paul and his companions, and all that took place while they were uh, while they were there, stating. For you yourselves know. This is what he says to him. You yourselves know, you Thessalonians. You know what we did there. You know what took place. You were witnesses of it. In this discourse, Paul repeats these terms six times. Six times Paul says this to them. Obviously, he's wanting to call their own personal testimony to account. In verse 1, He says, for you yourselves know. In verse 2, he says, as you know. Right? In verse 5, he says, "Um, as you know. (laughs) We never came with flattering speech. As you know. Verse 9, he says, for you recall, brethren. And um, in verse 10, again, you are witnesses and so is God. Right? Right? Uh, verse 11, he says, just as you know, and again, he keeps bringing this up again and again and again, their own personal knowledge of what took place while he was there. And so he wants to call them to account of their remembrance. So this is one of those things that causes commentators to say, well, people are trying to sway their opinion about Paul. People are trying to sway their opinion about Paul's integrity. You know, if you can't defeat the message then usually they're throwing stones at the messenger, right? When they they find themselves powerless against the truth of the gospel, they want to discredit the gospel ministers. And Paul faced this constantly um, in the Gentile world. And not only with the Gentiles, with the Jews, right? Who were ready and willing to go and hire an angry mob from the marketplace to go and run this guy out of town, right? And so, if you will, um, Paul is saying, look, We were there. You saw how we lived. You saw what we did. And you and God both know it. So, therefore, believe what you saw. Believe what is true. Not the deceiving lies of those who might discredit us or, more importantly, discredit the message of the gospel or the work of the Holy Spirit that has powerfully changed your life. And this is what he says. He says, our coming to you was not in vain. Right? Well, whether there were naysayers and critics of Paul's integrity is not known, but what was known was the Thessalonians' own first-hand testimony of Paul's powerful and effective ministry and his personal integrity as he explains that our coming to you was not in vain. They were all eyewitnesses of the meaningful and lasting changes that had been wrought upon these new Christians and how their lives had been powerfully changed by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. This gospel ministry was not a vain and meaningless failure, but rather a display of God's divine power and majesty, graciously saving and transforming hopeless sinners. Think about this. (laughs) This Thessalonian church was steeped in idolatry and debauchery and all manner of wickedness and vile things that come from this first century religious cults that they were involved in. And along comes this gospel preacher and preaches this message to these Thessalonians and just literally calls them out of darkness by the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And in that, the Holy Spirit comes to live in these people and utterly transform them. So much so that they are filled with such joy and such confidence that they immediately go out and begin to sound forth this message everywhere that they can. And their lives become a living testimony of the power of the Holy Spirit changing and transforming sinners. And Paul says that they had received the message with full conviction and with the power of the Holy Spirit. He says that they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Not only did they turn away from the wicked sin of their uh, lifestyle, okay, but they began to serve God in very meaningful and powerful ways. 
These people were making an investment. These people were spending their money. They were spending their time. They were spending their talents and their treasures. They were spending their very life to go out and to preach the gospel. Are you with me? And this was a great testimony of the power and effectiveness of Paul's ministry there and, and the fact that God was showing by his grace how he transforms the lives of people. Are you with me? If you will, the Thessalonians were great sinners. But Christ is a great Savior. Amen? And their life is a testimony of that. It is a display of the divine majesty and power of God, what happened in the Thessalonian church. Well, not only that, it is a testimony to the meaningfulness of Paul's ministry and to the powerful effectiveness of Paul's ministry. And this is why he says, our ministry to you wasn't in vain. It wasn't meaningless. It wasn't vanity. It was powerful. It changed you. It transformed you. Amen? Which is what Christian life ought to look like. Do you agree? Amen. We ought to, we, we're a people that have been holy, uh, uh, holy, set apart unto God to follow Him, to walk in a manner worthy of Him. Amen? We ought to be different from the world around us. We ought to be like those Thessalonians. One day steeped in sin, the next day serving the living and the true God in holiness and in upright integrity. Amen? And so they were. He writes here in verse 2, But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. A key element in Paul's integrity was how he persevered through much suffering and opposition to come to them. Paul and Silas had been shamefully mistreated in Philippi in no small way just prior to arriving in Thessalonica. The Greek word for mistreated means to be publicly shamed. And if you will, we can look in the book of Acts in chapter 16, verses 16 through 24, which records this incident that Paul refers to. Here's what he says. He says, we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. Even though that happened, he says, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel, even though the people in your place were opposing us as well. And he's, first off, he's pointing to the fact that he was willing to come and preach the gospel to him at great personal risk and at great personal cost. Not only that, a risk and a cost which he had just paid prior to coming to them. Are you with me? It's kind of like the same thing. This angry mob runs him out of town, and what's he do? He, he, he lands in Berea in the synagogue preaching again the gospel. And it, this is, you know, this is a, the, the, the thing that Paul had given himself to. In every place, much affliction, right? And so, uh, if you will, uh, what happened there in Philippi is recorded in Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. Listen to this. And it happened that as they were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed, and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Well... <clears throat> Um, the words that are used there uh, in 1 Thessalonians 2 
where it says that they had suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, the, the word mistreated there actually means to be publicly shamed. It's not something that happens in private, okay? And it's not just a mistreatment, but it's a shameful mistreatment. Now, there's a little bit of controversy as to what exactly happened. You might be familiar with the stocks. How many of you know what the stocks are? The stocks are that thing when you go on family vacation and you go somewhere and, and you see the kids with their hands and their head hanging through the thing like that and mom's taking a picture, right? Those are the stocks. Well, here's what the stocks were for. The stocks were to publicly humiliate a criminal. Okay? And typically what would happen when someone was put in the stocks, the people would walk by and do shameful things to mistreat them. And I won't go into all the manner of shameful things that happened when people were in the stocks, but it wasn't much fun. Not only that, it was a public um, it was a public mistreating. This is something that was meant to be a shameful thing that would happen in the sight of all the people. So that if you were ever put in the stocks, man, you were publicly shamed. You were publicly maligned. You were held in the public uh, in contempt. Okay? Well, in the case of Paul and in, in Philippi, it says they put him in the inner prison in stocks. Okay? Well... This is a different kind of stocks. This is a kind of stocks where your body's not on the ground. In other words, you're hanging by your ankles and your neck and your feet or some other way that they would bind you and cause you to just kind of hang there and suffer. And so, if you will, this was meant uh, of more of a torture kind of a thing than it was uh, of a public mistreating because here they're in the inner prison. Here they're not in public. And so, uh, um, nevertheless, the terms that are used here have to do with being publicly mistreated. And I think that what's clearly being pointed out here is that they were brought before the chief magistrates and then right out here in the open of everybody, they tore their robes off of them. Now, now think about this. There was no court here. There was no established testimony because the things that they accused Paul of weren't even true. Paul didn't do anything wrong. He didn't break a single Roman law. Okay? Nevertheless, right here in the middle of the Philippi, in public, the chief magistrates, the city authorities, tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And after they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. And so this they did in public. And this was a public humiliation. And it was a public thing of shame to be uh, beaten this way in front of all the people in the city square. And so, if you will, this is what happened to Paul and Silas in Philippi. Well, you might remember the rest of the story, right? That night, they're in the jail singing praises unto God. Rather than crying about their bruises, right? They're crying out about the mercy of God and saving them from their sins. Rejoicing, right? Being counted worthy to be gospel ministers, to preach the gospel, to suffer such persecution, right? Well, <clears throat> this pleased God very much so. So much so that he shook the whole place, right? He shook the whole place so violently that all of the chains and doors broke open in the prison and all of the prisoners were let free. It literally says their chains fell off, right? Well, this is where the Philippian jailer, who had just been commanded to guard them securely, right, was ready to kill himself. He saw the prisoners going free. Man, he knows, man, I'm toast. I'm toast, right? So in his desperation, right, he cries out to Paul and Silas and he says, what must I do to be saved, Right? And what's Paul's answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Amen? And so, if you will, the very next set of verses tells us that um, when morning came, Paul was before the magistrates and he let him in on a little secret, that he was a Roman citizen and that they had treated him that way, being a Roman citizen, and if you will, this put them in a very precarious position. 
Well, as a, as a result of all of this, they were greatly disturbed, that is the city authorities, and they begged Paul and Silas to leave. So, you know, Paul, Paul could have played the Roman citizen card, right? And he could have had them in big trouble in, in no time. Uh, but instead, he decided to pack up his things and go down the road, right? So when Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians, right, here's what he's referring to. <laughs> but, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. And so he's saying, you Thessalonians know, you know, we weren't coming in here with some kind of impure motive. Man, we just came down the road where we were just beat up and publicly mistreated. And then we came to you to share the same message, right? And Paul, if you will, is defending his integrity. He's defending the purity of his heart and his ministry to the Thessalonians. You see that? In spite of this painful and brutal persecution, Paul and Silas gathered much boldness in our God and were determined to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. This heroic and courageous act was one that came from men of pure motives and much confidence. Amen? These are heroes, family. These are heroes who are going to be hallowed in the halls of God forever and ever for these things that they have done in service to God. Amen? He goes on, verse 3, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. He says here, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Paul proves the sincerity of his ministry to them because of his loving service to them in spite of much opposition. It was certainly not the work of a charlatan or a deceiver, one who would seek to exploit people through false means. Listen, no false prophet would endure such a scourging to bring his deceiving lies to anyone. Are you with me? And so Paul is pointing to this thing that regardless of the kind of suffering and public humiliation and persecution that he received on his journeys, he was willing to come to them and to share the gospel with them, even though in their very place they were facing much opposition. And it wasn't a little opposition, was it? It was much opposition. Had, had he not run out of town, he'd have lost his life there. Amen? He had an angry mob of criminals that had been hired. You know, it's kind of like... It's kind of like being in a city and, and, and uh, uh, you go down to a certain religious place and you start giving a message. Well, you hack them off enough, they go hire the mob. They go hire the mob to come get you. And you know what turns out there. You know Cousin Vinny. <laughs> you with me? He's going to rearrange your body parts. You understand? They hired an angry mob from the marketplace, the kind of guys that are real good at doing that kind of thing, and they ran them out of town. This is what he means by much opposition, right? And the Jews, of course, were furious. We've read the account. They were furious at the things that Paul was saying. Well, <clears throat> the apostles were not seeking money so as to deceive their hearers with some error. Verse 9 tells us that they worked to support themselves. There in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, he says, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And here's the idea. Paul and Silas worked with their hands to earn money, to pay for their own provisions, so that they weren't a burden to any of the Thessalonians that they were preaching to. Okay? This he calls to account of his own integrity. Listen, they weren't liars they weren't deceivers they didn't come with error right or the word here impurity has to do with sexual misconduct they were not after sexual favors so that they would be accused of impurity this would be something that would be common in this day and in this age and in this place because there was much sexual immorality that took place in these religious cults and at these religious temples that what would go on in these temples 
were, were acts of sexual deviation. And that's how they would worship their gods. And many charlatans and, and many deceivers at that time would come, and this would be their quest. They would seek to have disciples for this very purpose. They were after money or sex or power, much like today's deceivers are. Amen? Or much like Peter would describe false teachers as being, right? He says they have eyes full of adultery, and they never stop sinning, right? This is the kind of thing that false teachers are after, not Paul. He didn't come. With, uh, uh, from error, and he, his message didn't spring from impurity. He wasn't after sexual favors. These apostles set forth the truth of the gospel plainly so that people could be saved, and they did nothing by way of deceit. They never once deceived anybody. They always spoke the truth. Amen? They didn't have to deceive. They were simply there to proclaim a message that God had given them. Amen? And the message itself does the transforming work itself. Well, see here then the apostles' sincere and loving motive toward their ministry to the Thessalonians. Listen, it wasn't in error, it wasn't in impurity, and it wasn't by way of deceit. He says here, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Here, Paul appeals to the highest authority. The apostles had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And this was the most compelling reason for him to preach in such circumstances. Why was Paul there, enduring such opposition? Why would Paul go from being beaten with rods, put in prison, publicly shamed, and hung in the stocks? Why would he go from there to the next city to do the same thing? Here's why. Because they were men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak. Paul says in another place, Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. Amen? This was his life purpose. This was his calling. When, when, uh, when uh, Christ knocked him off his high horse on the road to Damascus, right? And, and he, 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 uh, he's telling Ananias, You tell him, He is my chosen instrument to take my name before the Gentiles, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. This guy that was murdering Christians, right? And so, if you will, this is God's purpose in Paul's life. This is God's very purpose, that Paul would go and preach the gospel among much opposition. And this he did with gladness and with joy, even singing as he hung in the stocks. Amen? Well, they were sent from the God of truth with the message of truth. How then could they deceive or be in error? They sought to please God and not men because God had commissioned and sent them and God was the one who examines their hearts as he writes there. He's saying, look, we came because God sent us. We didn't come for any other motives. We weren't after your praise. We weren't after your money. We weren't after anything you had for us. We were there because God sent us to come and preach to you. And we were simply carrying out the orders that he had given us. He says in Galatians 1.10, he says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Amen? And so these things are so evident in the life of Paul. But notice this other thing about Christian leadership. The message that they deliver is of divine origin. It comes from God and it doesn't come from men. These were men entrusted with the gospel of God. They were given a message from heaven to deliver to the people. Not something that they could invent. Not something that they could deceive people into believing. Not some cake that they put a bunch of icing on so everybody would think it was a nice sweet loaf. Are you with me? They came with a message from God. And they came uh, uh, with, with God's message that changes the hearts of people supernaturally by His power. Amen? They weren't there to please men. They were there to please God. He says, and so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God. 
Paul's motive and aim was to carry out the master's orders, not tickle people's ears. Would that all Christian preachers would learn in this school and stop seeking to please men and get down to the business of setting forth the truth plainly so that people can be saved. Amen? Amen. Are you with me? This is that bell I keep ringing about clearly articulating the gospel. Are you with me? We have to set forth the truth plainly. We don't invent clever stories to tell people about some you know, fancy idea that we have about what God's idea or plan is. Okay? We come with an old, old story. Are you with me? One that has never changed since it was uh, in the mind of God the Father in eternity past. Jesus was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And that's what we preach today. We preach a Jesus slain on the cross for the sins of men so that people can be saved by trusting in Him and turning from their sins. Turning to God from their sins and trusting in Christ. Amen? Amen. And that family is an offense to people. Why are they beating Paul up? Why, when he goes from city to city to city, does he meet with much opposition? Because the gospel is an offense. That's why. So, look, if we try to invent a new way to, to explain the gospel that removes all the offense, what do you suppose we've done to the gospel? We've robbed it of its power. We've, we have invented a new gospel. Amen? Which is really no gospel at all. It's no good news at all. Amen? Okay. I'll, stop. I'll get off that soapbox here for about five minutes. <clears throat> for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Paul did not seek to flatter his hearers, but to warn them of impending judgment. To flatter here is to exploit or deceive others with insincere praise. Okay? The Greek has a very specific meaning, and really it's really close to the English as well. The idea of flattering is insincerity. When you say something to somebody that's meant to uh, make their eyes twinkle or tickle their ears, right? And you say it with an insincere motive, that's what we call flattery, okay? Or your motive is not what you state your motive to be. It's a deceiving thing. That's what this flattery is. Paul says, we didn't come to you with flattering speech. We didn't seek to deceive you or to exploit you or to tell you anything that was insincere. There was nothing insincere about Paul's speech, and so he says, we never came with flattering speech. And to this they were witnesses, so he writes, as you know. He says, you, you Thessalonians were there. You know how we were. We didn't come with flattering speech. We, did, we didn't come through there trying to pat you on the back and tell you what nice people you were and why God ought to pour out all his favor on you. We came there warning you of the wrath of God. <laughs> And how you should turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from this perverse generation that you are a part of. Amen? Christians should, sus should be suspect of flattering preachers. By this they expose their insincerity. You with me? I want to repeat that for you. Christians should be suspect of flattering preachers. By this they expose their insincerity. My, how we could talk about the modern gospel and flattering preachers. Paul did not seek to take their money because he was greedy, but instead to hand out the riches of God's grace. And for this he was willing to risk his life again and again. To this he says, God is witness. Paul knows that ultimately we will give an account to God and that is what matters when all is said and done. We did not seek glory from men, either from you or from others, he asserts. Paul was not on a power trip looking for the accolades and submission of men. 
even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Paul knows that his charge is from God, his message is from God, and his praise is to come from God at the judgment. Therefore, he gives his life in service to Christ regardless of the response of men. This characterized the life of Paul. Consider what he wrote in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Paul says, look, I don't even live my own life anymore. I've been crucified with Christ. Whatever dreams, goals, desires that Paul had, listen, those all died with Christ. And I don't even live anymore. He says, Christ lives in me. He says, I don't know where I, where I leave off and Jesus takes up. Everything I do, Paul says, I do for Christ. And that's how he lived his life, as an example to us. Acts 20, verses 22 and following. And now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, and to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was a man of circumspect purpose. He received a charge from the Lord Jesus, and that's what he was going to give himself until the day he died. And that is exactly what he did. And he was very right in saying that bonds and afflictions awaited him. Right? All the way up to the head honcho in Rome, where Paul lost his head. Amen? All that suffering and pain wound up on the Apian way, losing his head. And for this, like I said earlier, his name shall be hallowed in the halls of heaven forevermore. And Caesar will burn in hell forever. And both will glorify God, one in damnation and in justice, and the other in mercy and free grace. <clears throat> Verse 7, he says this, But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Here he says, we proved to be gentle among you. Not only had they come to Thessalonica in the face of much opposition, with a message and commission from God, with intentions and motives of the purest form, he now describes that in so doing, there was a great humility and loving care on their part. They had served the Thessalonians in such a humble and gentle way as to be compared to a nursing mother. And to this they were witnesses, even as the apostles proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother cares for her own children. Their gentleness was evident to all. Paul, the master disciple maker, was very gentle with the new believers, so much so that he employed a very caring and nurturing way of discipling that looked much like motherhood. This tender nurture and gentleness also characterized Paul's ministry, as was evident in his instructions to those he trained. It is a dominant characteristic of biblical leadership. Okay? Family. See here again. Another characteristic of biblical leadership. Listen. Gentle, tender, nurturing care. Tender, gentle, nurturing care. This comes with the balance of boldness and warning and encouragement and exhortation. Amen? 
There is this great balance that happens, a great paradox, if you will. The kingdom of God offers all of the glory and the blessing and the favor of God, and at the same time, a warning of the fires of hell. Are you with me? So it is in Christian ministry, there is this great balance of gentle, nurturing, loving care with warning and exhortation and imploring, right? as he describes in verse uh, 10 and 11. And so, as Paul would teach his hearers in 2 Timothy, he says in chapter 2, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And so here Paul writes to Timothy saying, look, God's servant shouldn't be quarrelsome. He should be kind. He should be able to teach. And listen, patient when wronged. Patient when wronged. Man, that's a high calling. Imagine Paul and Silas walking away from those magistrates in Philippi, knowing full well that they could have hung their rear ends up good. Are you with me? They had committed a tremendous crime in in uh, beating and... and uh, doing these things to Paul without a proper trial. And um, you know what he did? He went down the road. He didn't hold it against them. He didn't come with the authorities and have them properly flogged. Right? He was patient when he was wrong. Titus 3, 1 and 2 He says uh, to Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And here again, he's instructing um, how Christians are to behave. We're not to be contentious. We're not to be fighters. Amen. We're to be peacemakers. And in that, we're to do it with gentleness and with respect. Amen? He took great pains to see to it that these baby Christians had everything they needed for Christian life as effective and productive members of the church. Think about Paul's discipling efforts as a mothering. He says, "We, we were there and we were gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And here a nursing mother. Now we're talking about how a mother cares for a newborn baby. And how tender and gentle that is. Paul's discipling efforts he describes in this way. These are baby Christians. And he's giving them everything they need. He's nurturing them. He's caring for them. And this goal he achieved by the power and grace of God, who made no small display of his power in the Thessalonian church, And this God did through the diligent leadership of the apostles. Now here, I want you to think about this thing that happens. God has in mind to save these Thessalonians. Amen? Every one of them chosen from the beginning for salvation. Now I want you to think for a minute about how God did that. Because them Thessalonians, they got saved. (laughs) Amen? And everybody knew it in a short period of time. But think about how God brought this to pass. I mean, obviously, the Lord Jesus died on the cross for their sins, right? And was raised for their justification. And, uh, but what practically happened was, Paul was commissioned with the message and came through with the ministry of disciple-making. And through this process, God saved the Thessalonians. Now think about that for a minute in light of the things I'm about to say. See here the glorious beauty of divine sovereignty and human responsibility working hand in hand to accomplish God's eternal plan. God had chosen the Thessalonians from before the beginning of time, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, for salvation and had decided that he should carry out a massive evangelical work through them in the Greco-Roman world. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5-9. This was his sovereign will and his eternal decree. However, he carried it out by his wonderful providence through the hands of men and their diligent service, whom he called to the task 
by the word of the gospel and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. This example brings new meaning to Ephesians 2.10, which says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I thought I should just point out that behind the scenes of all of this activity that's going on in the Thessalonian church is the love of God that he set upon these Thessalonian believers, each and every one of them, in order to save them. And when we look at what happened in time and space, for that to take place, God is carrying this out by a mighty providence through the hands of men. And this is a divine mystery. (laughs) Nevertheless, divine sovereignty and human responsibility work hand in hand to carry out the eternal plans of God. Are you with me? And here is a, a perfect example of it, the Thessalonian church. He writes here, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. See here the sincere and genuine love that motivated Paul's work. He deeply loved the church, and as he saw God call them out, he tenderly received them into the fold. In fact, because he had so fond an affection for you, he was well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Being willing to preach the gospel in spite of much hardship was proof enough of their love for the church. But that is not all they did. They had made a great sacrifice of time and resources. They had made a sacrifice of pain. They had made a sacrifice of everything they had to come to these Thessalonians and to preach for them. And by this, Paul is saying, we showed our love to you. We manifested our love for you. We manifested our sincerity to you by the way that we lived and the things that we did. They made a great sacrifices of time and resources to visit the Thessalonians as they poured their very lives into them day by day for as long as they could. Paul's ministry was not only one of many words, but it was accompanied by a lifestyle of loving service and kind affection, as he states, because you had become very dear to us. Listen, Paul's example was not just many words, listen, but a lifestyle of loving service and kind affection. And so see here more qualities of biblical leadership. Kind affection and a lifestyle of loving service. Here it is manifested in the life of the Apostle Paul. See here the love of God to be what characterizes Christian leadership, which is also seasoned with fond affection for those whom it serves. And in verse 9, he says, For you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. I think I better stop there. Hey, we got through eight verses. (laughs) Somebody must have been praying for me. Shall we pray? God, our Father, we are amazed at the things that you do through clay pots like Paul. And God, we know our own weakness. And it gives us hope that you could use us in service to you, Lord. I pray as we consider these verses that we would examine the motives of our own hearts as we serve you. I pray that we would be motivated to serve you more that we would see the example of these apostles and we would see areas of our life that need to change so that we can serve you, God. And that we can see how they carried it out so that we might know how it is that we are to serve and love one another. I pray, Lord, that you would use this text by the Spirit to convict us and to conform us into the image of Jesus. May we see in these apostles what Jesus taught them to do. And may we learn 
in this school and do what the Master has called us to. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in our lives. Oh, Lord, for any who might be doubting or lacking confidence, I pray that you would strengthen their faith. God, that they might know that that you are pleased with them, them being in Christ and, and trusting in Christ for their righteousness, that, Lord, your favor and your divine blessing rests upon them. I pray that we would be encouraged to serve you and not to be overcome by this wicked world that we live in. But God, help us to look beyond the the temptations and the trials of the day. Help us to meditate daily upon your word and to bear fruit that's acceptable to you. To live, to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling that we have received. To realize the people that we are, the holy, sacred people of God, set apart for good works which you have foreordained. God, help us to see our lives as kings and priests. Help us to see our ministry as a priesthood. God, help us to see all that you've called us to and strengthen us by your Spirit to walk in this way. We thank you for this divine privilege. I pray that you'd grant us insight into these mysteries. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.